Hello, and welcome to Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tapeheads is the podcast where we select a VHS tape from either my collection or Lindsay's collection. We watch it and then we talk about it. We're diving into my collection to pay tribute to a special man who passed away recently, Roger Moore, who played James Bond in seven films. Was he in the most James Bond films? Officially, yes. Sean Connery was in six official James Bond movies, but um, in the 80s he decided, you know, I could probably do another one of these, and uh, he did an unofficial uh, remake of Thunderball called Never Say Never Again, which I think had Kim Basinger in it. And How does that really work, that you just do one that's an unofficial? Like, it's not even part of the main film series it was by a different company yeah it's kind of complicated there 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 are rights issues over that movie thunderball um which i think was sean connery's fourth the author or co-author of thunderball sort of retained the rights for a long time in his estate the rights to that story and the organization specter and blofeld and that's why for a long time they couldn't reference any of these things until the uh, most recent film, Spectre, which we saw together. I didn't know about all that complicated legal stuff. So long story short, technically he's tied with Sean Connery, but I think he made the most because I don't really, I don't really count Never Say Never Again. Sean Connery must have been hard up for cash or just was pretty judgmental of the new Bonds or... I think also he had sort of a falling out with the original Bond producers, and uh, he saw it as an opportunity to kind of take a jab at them. Interesting. (laughs) At Albert Broccoli. Roger Moore passed away at 89 years young, and I thought that we'd take this opportunity to visit uh, what many people consider to be his best film. It's certainly one of his most memorable ones. Last time we dipped into the... Bond canon was for uh, my favorite Bond, Timothy Dalton, in License to Kill. This is your first time checking out old Roger Moore, isn't it? Yeah. He left a little to be desired. Oh, shots fired. Even more recently, we lost Adam West, and I feel like it's a similar attitude. Um, I think that Roger Moore, I often have made this comparison, he's sort of the Adam West of the Bond actors. You know, the comedy is a little broader, the villains are a little sillier. I mean, I... I'm not sure, we'll discuss this later, but I'm not sure I agree. Okay, okay. Or at least my impression from just this one film. So, to give you a little bit of context, um, you know, there was the Sean Connery run of Bond films, which was hugely successful. George Lazenby came in to do a one-off, which was pretty successful, but Sean Connery was widely regarded to be James Bond. And when Roger Moore came on the scene, he was best known for the TV show The Saint, which uh, we covered the Val Kilmer version of uh, with our friend Chad Hines. (laughs) And his first two were not super well received um, before The Spy Who Loved Me. They were kind of, you know, live and let die, and especially The Man with the Golden Gun. Got sort of middling reviews, kind of lukewarm uh, reception at the box office, and I think a lot of people were thinking, maybe this is kind of played out. Like, there are the Sean Connery ones that everybody loved. Like, maybe this James Bond thing has run its course. So he was the second Bond. He was the third, because uh, George Lazenby 
did a one-off. Oh, in that's there. right. There we go. Okay. Yeah. Well, and he was actually an actor. Wasn't Lazenby a model? Lazenby's an interesting case. I think he's he's a little underrated in the role. Um, there's an interesting uh, documentary out there that I've been meaning to see on Hulu called Becoming Bond, which is a lot of interviews with George Lazenby. You can sort of get the sense that he talked his way into getting the role and then when he finally had it he decided he didn't really want it anymore but um with roger moore it sort of seemed like the series was on life support after the man with the golden gun it sort of feels like a made for tv movie it doesn't really have the spectacle that we've come to expect from james bond Mm -hmm. so with this one they said okay like let's just really go for it this time let's double the budget Let's have these enormous set pieces. Let's make just the most visually spectacular Bond film. $14 million budget, which is quite a bit of money for the time. Certainly the most ever spent on a Bond film up until that point. Uh, and just these enormous sets. They they had to build an entire set for the inside of that uh, tanker for that enormous uh, shootout at the end. And... They had all these set pieces in Egypt, and say what you will about this movie, I know you've got a lot of thoughts about it, but I think that you can definitely see the money up on the screen. Like, I think it's definitely seems like a big budget affair. It kind of felt like a Michael Bay film before they had the special effects and CG graphics to do a crazy Michael Bay film. So this was like the 70s version of let's throw whatever we can to make this look really cool. <laughs> Especially like in the third act with the, with the, when it sort of becomes a full-on almost war movie. Yeah, and to an extent, like, maybe it was, a two, it was more than two hours. It's two hours and eight minutes. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of stuff going on where it was just clearly extended so they could fit in this other thing that they spent a ton of money on to make it look cool. This is actually a shorter film than License to Kill, but I do notice with some of these 70s era Bond films, you can really feel the length. You know, especially in scenes of exposition when they're talking about how the submarine tracking works (laughs) and, you know, there's a lot of... uh, British men of a certain age kind of, uh, you know, going through all this technical exposition. It does feel a little long in the tooth and a little dated, I will say. (laughs) The clothes alone were really interesting. Like, we were commenting Triple X, a.k.a. Anya, a.k.a. the... She, She may very well be the spy who loved me, referenced in the title, but... Her clothes were actually not super dated. It was kind of interesting. A lot of what she wore, you could kind of see a fashionable woman wearing on the street now. But even James Bond's military uniform had bell bottoms. His tuxedo had bell bottom cut pants. (laughs) I think he still wears all those 70s clothes pretty well. Like when he's got the huge 70s bow tie... You could put him in the most ridiculous clothes, and Roger Moore sort of has that urbane quality that he can just sort of, you know, yeah. wear whatever. And I loved it. It was so perfect when Richard Keel showed up, uh, Jaws showed up in his blue suit. <laughs> his double-breasted. I wonder how he finds clothes. I yeah. guess he has to have them specially made. Like, this is like a light blue, baby blue suit that people make fun of the 70s for. I think the things that this movie is best remembered for 
are Jaws, who I mm-hmm. think is one of the most iconic villains of the series. The seven, he's seven feet tall, he's got metal teeth, superhuman strength. One of the only Bond villains to appear in multiple movies. Originally supposed to be killed off, but they bring him back for Moonraker. <laughs> I think it's also remembered for the underwater car, that Lotus of Spirit that he drives. And just like how insane some of these, these uh, action sequences are, yeah. like the opening where... He skis off a cliff and a, a Union Jack parachute opens. I mean, it's like one of those insane stunts that makes you realize like, yeah, they probably wouldn't do that for real now because well, it's so to... insanely dangerous. There was a guy that actually jumped off a cliff with skis. Yeah. And parachuted off of it. Like, that's insane. Apparently the royal family attended the premiere and everyone was on their feet clapping when that Union Jack parachute opened. Wow. I do think it's funny that we're kind of... Work- uh, I'm, I'm trying to expose you to some more James Bond here. And we're kind of working backwards. <laughs> because, I mean, I guess you grew up... I mean, you grew up with Pierce Brosnan as Bond. Yes. You saw a couple of those. I saw, I saw all of the Brosnan ones until... The movie he did with Halle Berry. Die Another Day. Yeah. That's an okay one to skip. That's my least favorite (laughs) in the series. And you're acquainted with the Daniel Craig ones. Yes, I've seen all of those. And and now we've gone from Dalton to Roger Moore. I guess George Lazenby is next on the list. (laughs) And we'll eventually get to Sean Connery. Sounds about right. I guess what I'm really curious about are, are what are your initial thoughts of Roger Moore as Bond? I mean, like, how does he compare to the other Bonds that you're familiar with? I prefer him to Brosnan for sure. Sorry, Pierce Brosnan, but he's probably my least favorite. But I actually thought Dalton was a more interesting Bond for me. I felt like Roger Moore seemed a little bit bored like his heart wasn't totally in it and he was just kind of going through the motions of oh this is a cool thing for me to do and maybe he had a little bit of humor going on but he he just didn't he wasn't really throwing himself in there one thing i will say about roger moore is i never really feel like he's in danger the way some of the other bonds are yeah like when i even when i think of sean connery who you know is in the swing in 60s i feel like he's always just caked with sweat like you kind of feel like some of the struggle with him even if he's you know he's sort of got a cocked eyebrow through it all yeah, for more, he just seemed, it seemed fairly effortless. Like, oh yeah, I just gotta kill another guy right now. I think his Bond is very suave, sort of devil-may-care, sort of shamelessly imperialist as he, <laughs> you know, trounces through Egypt in his uh, three-piece tuxedo. Everybody's acting as if they still owned Egypt as a col- Well, not owned, but they still had Egypt as an English colony. Mm-hmm. There's only one trailer on this tape. Uh, the, the tape that we're working off here is an 88 release that has uh, the Moore Classics written at the top, which is a little funny because this movie is only 10 years old and this tape came out. But what's funny is the only trailer on this tape is for Moonraker, and it's like a vintage movie trailer yeah, for Moonraker. It was not updated for release on a VHS tape or anything. There's no mention of buy it on tape or anything. It it felt like a trailer that I would have watched if I went to the movies just as Moonraker was about to come out in theaters. Yeah, I guess the only reason they slapped it on there is just, you know, if someone loves this movie and watches it over and over again, uh, like me growing up, 
then uh, <laughs> they want to advertise the next one in the series. Kind of like, if you like Spy Who Loved Me and you couldn't get enough Jaws, be sure to tune in for the next installment when they're in space. So, like most James Bond movies, The Spy Who Loved Me does have a plot. It's very convoluted, and uh, you don't necessarily have to pay attention to all of it. It's more just the clothesline to hang all these action set pieces on. Yeah, it was really confusing, though. I mean, I understand it because just because I've seen this film so many times. Yeah. But I, I realized, so the movie opens with a... Uh, British submarine and something happens to it and then it disappears we sort of see you know everything on the submarine starting to vibrate and we hear through dialogue that the same thing has happened to a Russian submarine but at this point in the movie we don't know exactly what has happened we just know that both the British and the Russians have have submarines that have gone missing and in response MI6 is calling in their top man James Bond and the KGB, the Russians, are sending in their top woman, Agent Triple X. Why does it... You sounded Scottish right there. Why does it have to be Agent Triple X? You know, I don't really She's know. She's so sexy. This is technically an adaptation of an Ian Fleming novel, but it really just shares a title because famously... All of the other Bond books are third person, sort of centered around James Bond, but The Spy Who Loved Me, the novel, is first person from a p female perspective of this woman who kind of just runs into James Bond. And oh. it, was, it was very experimental. Ian Fleming kind of regarded it as a failed experiment, so for whatever reason, he only licensed the title to Eon, uh, the, the company that, that produced these films. And of course, he passed away long before this movie was made. Oh, that's really interesting. So they essentially took that title mm. to tie it into Bond and then created a story that was inspired by it. The Spy Who Loved Me is one of the few Fleming books I haven't read, just because its reputation is not great. I'd sort of be curious to, to read it and see if it has anything to do with this, but... I mean, all those weird things like Agent Triple X and Jaws and a man who wants to live under the sea, that's all sort of invented from whole cloth. But anyway, I guess the, uh, in a nutshell, what this movie is about is Bond and Anya, the Russian agent, are searching for these uh, missing nuclear subs, and their search leads them to Carl Stromberg, who's kind of a classic Bond villain, kind of a megalomaniac who has one of these beautifully designed layers uh, by Ken Adams. He, his whole plan is that he wants to wipe out mankind because he feels it's become very decadent and he wants to start a new world under the sea. Uh, the specifics aren't really gone into. What's funny is Moonraker, the movie after this, it's more of a eugenics type thing. Like the bad guy has actually picked a lot of like doe-eyed blonde yeah okay. it's it's more of a hitler-esque thing whereas this it's unclear who's going to live in these underwater cities it's Does... probably gonna be him his sharks sexy ladies and his good old jaws yeah that, that seems to be the implication a, he even has a sexy outfit that he has triple x put on when she's imprisoned with him yeah that, that's very loaded the way he like steals her off at the end is, is she just going to be the new Eve to his Adam in this underwater sex world? The, the other thing that's kind of weird about that is if he's going to create his own 
city or a nation or whatever underwater at the bottom of the ocean, why does he have to kill off all of mankind? He could just pretend mankind doesn't exist and have his thing going underwater. That's a very good point. And he could hire people to uh, bring in resources like food. I mean, you can't really crow much of anything under water. Well, and if you nuke everyone on the planet, then you're not going to leave yourself with with land where you can create the food and everything you need. I think the easy explanation for this is Stromberg is just kind of isolated and weird and he's kind of gone crazy. I think they also just wanted to make him super evil. Yeah. Because you had to have reason for, during the Cold War, for the US, Britain, and Russia to team up. Yeah, you know, I kind of tend to like the Bond villains better that don't really have world domination as their master plan. I mean, like Sanchez and License to Kill, for example. He's just kind of a drug dealer and wants to continue being a a drug dealer. And in a way, that's kind of more interesting to me. Yeah, it's like the most recent Bond movie with Daniel Craig. I thought it was just a little over the top. Oh, with uh, Christoph Waltz as Blofeld. And yeah, and he was kind of playing the ultimate Bond villain. I mean, sort of the ultimate world domination style villain Mm -hmm. uh, in Blofeld. I mean, that's who like Dr. Evil is based on. And that's where like these really elaborate layers sort of come from. And it's fun and campy and like definitely fits in the Roger Moore world. But it is kind of far-fetched. It fits in the Roger Moore world a little better. I mean, mm-hmm. when you have this weird old white guy sitting with fish and sharks swimming behind him <laughs> in his underwater lair with a fire burning. That's the other thing. Like, he has a working fireplace in his underwater mansion. Yeah, I mean, I guess he's got, like, a maybe a propane hookup for that or no, some no, sort of portable gas. it was just gas. really odd. It was just yeah. kind of like, why did you need to put a fireplace there? But I guess they wanted to really show this guy can do whatever he wants. He has fire underwater. And interestingly, um, he actually has webbed hands. And it's only really noticeable in one shot when he sort of got his hand on Anya's shoulder. Oh, but I didn't notice it's, that. It's very hard to see in on a VHS, but it's also difficult to tell on DVD. But he's actually kind of a fish man himself. So it's almost he... like the Danny DeVito penguin in a way. Where so Was that natural or did he have that surgically added on? To be more of a fishman? To be a fishman. I always assumed it was a birth defect and he just felt more at home with the sea, but it could have been... And that's why he wanted to kill everyone else off. He's the specimen of the future. Mm Mm-hmm. Because he can kind of swim a little bit better with his webbed hands. I, you know, I don't really know. I mean, mean, you could... It's such a weird detail for them to add out of nowhere and not emphasize enough for you to notice. I mean, there's been 24 or 25 Bond films, whether or not you count the the unofficial Connery one. And in the grand scheme of plots, I actually feel like this is one of the more straightforward ones because all it really amounts to is these two agents, Bond and Anya, trying to find these submarines. You know, they get into some entanglements with Jaws, who's the henchman who's sort of hired to stop them. Uh, And then the sort of the B plot is Anya's lover had been killed by Bond in that amazing uh, help sequence. So this is one of the things I had a problem with in this movie. And the web thing, I didn't even notice. But there are so many different things that they do, and they don't make it 
obvious enough. It's just so quick and focused on the action and going on to the next thing or big event that they don't really clearly lay these things out. Like, you had to tell me that her lover was killed by Bond. It doesn't help that he's the most nondescript looking guy, that lover Well, and of then a lot of the women look really similar because they all have the same 70s long hair. So <laughs> I had a hard time picking up when she kept coming back. Oh, Anya? Yeah. Yeah. It, for the first, like, section of the movie through Egypt, I would, like, I was occasionally thinking, it, w it was until she was in that gown, I think, that I wasn't sure if she was, it, it seemed like a new woman that was being introduced. Yeah, you know, I think I just have the advantage of having seen this so many times. Like when the head of the KGB shows up, who's another really nondescript looking white guy, I'm able to say like, oh yeah, that's General Gogol. He's the, the M of the KGB. Well, late in the movie when he shows up again, he's not even wearing a really obvious KGB or Russian outfit. So, and then he's standing there with two other elderly white men with white hair. And they all look the same. Everyone in this movie kind of looks the same except Jaws. <laughs> you can tell Jaws apart from everyone else. Yeah, Jaws stands out. And he's a Fresnan Jaws. Uh, from Fresno, California. Yes, <laughs> so my neck of the woods. Uh, I actually got to briefly meet Richard Keel before he passed away. He uh, had a little booth at the San Francisco Comic-Con, uh, WonderCon, and he was selling his merch. Unfortunately, I didn't buy any merch from him, but I did walk up and shake his hand and let him know that I thought he was a great Bond villain. And you said he seemed a little pissed he off. He seemed a little gross. I mean, he didn't want to be there, you know? It was towards the end of his career. He was mostly retired. Yeah. Uh, I bet he was. He sort of had some other business ventures in the in the Fresno area. He's probably also wondering how big of a fan you were if you weren't buying his autograph. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't. Really, I'm not really big on buying like things and having them signed. But I wanted to shake his hand, and it is a massive hand as we see in this movie. Oh my god! During that uh, fight on the train where he's hiding in Anya's closet and his his mitt is just on Roger Moore's throat. <laughs> it's like a baseball glove on his throat. It's huge. The other thing that was really weird about Jaws is he has these stainless steel teeth that look really uncomfortable, but he uses them to rip out people's, uh, the jugular from people's necks, I guess. But he does it in a way that it seems like a vampire bite. So at first I thought he was going to drink their blood. <laughs> And then now he just steps away without any blood on him whatsoever. He's perfectly clean. Yeah, that's sort of a gripe I have too. Is I mean, it, it's very bloodless. I mean, this is a PG movie. It is basically for a younger audience, even though some of those shootouts towards the end are pretty brutal. It'd be totally inconsistent if he bit into a guy and there's just blood everywhere <laughs> just spewing out. At least a little blood on his shirt or something. Yeah, I, I, I guess I agree. But yeah, this B-plot where Anya gradually figures out that Bond is the one who killed her lover in, during that awesome ski sequence at the beginning of the movie. I mean, she figures that out sort of in the third act of the movie, so that's almost irrelevant to everything. It's really just giving them a little conflict in their relationship, mm -hmm. and she sort of just forgives him at the end of the movie. Yeah, she she kind of forgets about the great love of her life pretty quickly. The great hairy love of her life. <laughs> he, he was a very hairy gentleman. So Barbara Bach plays Anya Amasova, Agent Triple X. Uh, what did you think of this Bond girl? Because this is a, this is a pretty key component of 
most Bond movies is the strength of, you know, his his paramour. I actually liked her in the film. I thought she was she was good. She was strong. You know, she held her own, although they made a lot of women can't drive jokes, which got old because it just <laughs> it kept repeating dangerous. over the course of this one scene. And it's just like, we got it, Bond. You made fun of her. She can't drive. Although she seems to be doing pretty well, considering she's up against this human giant that's able to rip out huge parts of the van. You can rip off parts of the van and can she's slamming on the gas to to go in reverse and he's able to just hold it in place with its wheels spinning. Yeah. And he can actually lift, he lifts the van up at one point. But uh, yeah, somehow she struggled with that. Yeah, you know, I think that she has a lot more agency than a lot of the other Bond girls of this time. I mean, especially, you haven't seen the, the previous movie, Man with the Golden Gun, but the Bond girl in that is just all the worst cliches of, like, not only does she not really have agency, but she's, like, actively kind of hurting Bond's efforts. Like, it's Interesting. it's not only the damsel in distress thing, but, like, she's causing lasers to go off. Oh, <laughs> she's just She's just a complete drag on Bond. Now Whereas, they... I feel like she's kind of his equal in a lot of ways, at least until she's kidnapped at the end of the film and does kind of become yeah. the damsel and in distress. I didn't really like that, but I did, I did appreciate that they set her up to be his equal initially. Like, she was the, the top agent for the KGB. Mm -hmm. So she was his equivalent for Russia. And I like that sequence when um, they've stowed in the back of Jaws's van and they're they're walking around these Egyptian ruins kind of trying to find him. Uh And they bump into each other and Bond points his gun at her, but she just raises like an arm to karate chop him as if her... I think to karate chop the gun away from him. Yeah, as if like all the weapons she needs are her arms. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The Egyptian setting was kind of weird and didn't really seem necessary. It was just kind of like, look at where we were able to film. We filmed in ruins. I think that's another staple of of these movies is, you know, there's, they usually choose like three exotic locales and some little piece of evidence leads them to this place and this place. Like this starts in the, I guess the Alps, and then it goes Mm -hmm. to Egypt, and then it goes to, I guess, Sardinia. No, I was just thinking of Egypt, where they have him, you know, it has this sort of Lawrence of Arabia feel where he's dressed up in more local garb, riding on a camel to a Bedouin camp that is led by an Englishman? There's some. There's definitely a lot of, like, empiricism and, and that sort of thing. they have the sexy Bedouin girls who are clearly white ladies that they've made up with a lot of makeup and put in skimpy clothes like really skimping we're talking really really low-waisted skirts and stuff yeah that's that's always an odd scene to me no matter how many times i've seen this it's like bond's contact in egypt it's like the first person he makes contact they sort of you know exchange pleasantries and it seems like he's got just a harem of women that he's like this is what he's doing in his retirement is he's just got a bunch of hoes in a tent in egypt no and then he and then he offers bond one of the ladies to stay the night with because bond's initially saying oh i need to get going but then as soon as he's given a woman to sleep with he's like oh i guess i'll stay which is Really gross. Yeah, that's definitely a Roger Moore thing to immediately get in bed with everyone. 
Um, of course, uh, we got Desmond Llewellyn as Q once again, hooking mm-hmm. it up with the gadgets. Yeah. Uh, this underwater car is uh, <laughs> definitely one of the most memorable things about the movie for me. No, I, I did like that touch. I liked how they even ga- gave it little uh, submarine sort of stylized rudders. Oh, and another iconic thing is this song. So nobody does it better which is, I think, one of, like, the top five Bond themes, in my mm-hmm. opinion, and performed by Carly Simon. Definitely better regarded than uh, Gladys Knight's License to Kill Aww. that we talked about in the last episode, although I do have a soft spot for that song. What did you think of this uh, Nobody Does It Better? I mean, it got stuck in my head. I was singing it after we finished watching the movie. Past the hum test. But, uh... It's, it's a little, that's a little much. Because it's, it's kind of a double entendre, you know? Like, they're oh, talking yeah. about he does all of it better. Mm-hmm. And this uh, opening credit sequence, uh, of, of which these are always known for, I feel like this is a pretty classic uh, opening credit sequence. You got the sexy silhouettes of ladies running mm-hmm. around on top of guns. and yeah. Roger Moore himself is in the credits, which is kind of unusual for him to actually be, uh, his his visage to be in it. I think if I have a complaint about this movie is I feel like the middle section definitely drags a little bit because I'm very much on board with a lot of the stuff in Egypt early on. But then when we get into the sort of like the Italian middle section of the movie, it does start to drag a little bit and we see Jaws chasing them once again. And it sort of feels like it's on repeat a little bit until we get to... What I think is like a really great third act, yeah. kind of starting when there's, we finally see how these subs have been taken through yeah. this giant uh, super tanker. It was really dragging for me for a while, and I just didn't really feel like much was happening that was really compelling. I think they might, I think they could have cut 20 minutes from this movie. There was just a lot of filler. It felt like the fourth Jason Bourne movie. Wait, the one with Jeremy Renner or the, the Matt Jeremy, Damon one? The Jeremy Renner one. Oh, okay. Because that's, that's not quite as the bad. fourth one. Yeah. Yeah, the Jeremy Renner one just dragged and it, not enough was happening. They had a 10 minute long chase scene at least, and it's just like, come on, get me to the next plot point. Every Bond movie more or less adheres to the same formula, and I think the best ones kind of make you forget about that. And kind uh-huh. of, like, I think that's a big part of the reason I love License to Kill so much, is because I. I mean, I think also because it deviates so much from the formula Mm -hmm. that I don't really feel the length of that movie. Like, that's closer to two and a half hours, License to Kill. Like that, Maybe not quite, but it's definitely longer than this. And it feels like a quicker watch, for sure. Yeah, it feels very quick, and there's so much interaction between Bond and the villain in that that I think is very interesting. And even though the locations aren't terribly interesting, just like the keys and and this made up Latin American city, like it feels like it's always moving and like it not just at the action, but with the, you know, all the character work. And that's the thing that was a little weird because this felt more like a Bond movie than License to Kill for me. But and it it had a little bit of that humor. It made me laugh. And it had sort of that tongue-in-cheek thing going on where it's making fun of itself and kind of aware that everything is explosive and big. I was really disappointed that they didn't take advantage of the joke having Bond say, Das Vidanya, Anya. I think that's a little bit smarter than this screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that as someone who loves this movie. 
this one doesn't age as well as some of Roger Moore's other movies. I mean, Live and Let Die, his first one, I feel like is grown for me just because it's New Orleans. It's got all this crazy voodoo stuff. Like it's, there's like a whole lot going on and it's like, again, the plot is kind of impenetrable, but it seems even crazier than this. Whereas at the time, um, when I was younger, I just loved this whole third act where there's like the battle to retake the super tanker and they have to get the detonator out of the nuke. And like that whole section of the movie is like what I thought of when yeah. I thought of The Spy Who Loved Me. And that's, but as I, you, yeah, but as you pointed out, I just wanted to say really quick, it mm-hmm. almost turns into a war movie at that point. And maybe yeah. that's why I was so drawn to it is because like, <laughs> oh, this is like a World War II movie all of a sudden at the end of this Bond film. Yeah, and I think that final act where they're doing this epic battle in the ship and you've got three nations waging war against this insane man that wants to destroy the planet so he can have his underwater sex town. That's a, That was a lot more exciting and it got more compelling and I was drawn into the movie more in that section, which is kind of a bummer because that's the part where Anya sort of disappears a little bit. But yeah, the military thing was kind of surprising because I didn't remember... I, Maybe because I'm most familiar with the the more recent Daniel Craig movies. I had forgotten that there was this Navy connection for Bond and that he was actually a military man. And so it was it kind of threw me off seeing him in this military mode acting like a Navy commander. It's never a big deal, except in this one it definitely is because it's such a like nautical like ocean themed movie and then no when they take apart the the nuclear warhead so that they can have a detonator to blow up this multi-inch thick metal barrier between them and the sort of command center of the ship where they can redirect the nuclear warheads that are going to go out and destroy half the planet bond has to himself figure out how to take this detonator out of a nuclear warhead without setting it off and they end up it ends up that he's essentially playing a game of operation (laughs) because there's a magnet and if he touches the magnet it'll just blow them all up you know, the the nuke stuff in this movie is really bizarre, too. Like, I even remember as a kid thinking it was kind of insane that once they gain access to this control room, you would think they'd just radio to the submarines like, hey, the evil plan's called off, just report back. But instead, they decide, because basically there's one sub that's going to fire on Moscow and the other one that's going to fire on New York you know, basically to start World War Three, But Bond is like, no, no, let's just redirect the uh, the coordinates so these nuclear attacks will still take place, but on the submarines that are in the middle of the ocean. That's what I don't get, because it's a nuclear... Two nuclear warheads going off in the ocean. Wouldn't this cause tsunamis or something like that and actually hurt people? I mean, it would permanently irradiate huge stretches of ocean at the very least. They're probably killing off a ridiculous amount of sea life. Yeah. So there goes the fishing industry because then you're also polluting the ocean with a ton of nuclear... And if these nuclear explosions go off just off the coast of these countries, wouldn't that still prompt World War III? Like, no one no one in the government really knows that this is going on. He's not in communication with any of his superiors during all this. Just like, oh, somebody sent nukes off in the ocean again. I mean, just talk about overkill to blow up these tiny little submarines with nuclear weapons. 
Yeah, or just fire them into space. Could you give them, I don't know, I guess you couldn't give them coordinates for space. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know, I was just thinking of North Korea setting off bombs in, uh, bombs in the Japan Sea. So I guess, you know, maybe bombing the ocean isn't so bad. The world has been saved. Now all Bond has to do is assemble a jet ski and uh, zoom on into the underwater lair to uh, save Anya. Mm-hmm. Um, he defeats Stromberg by what boils down to just shooting an old man at his dinner table multiple times. <laughs> kind of the, one of the more anticlimactic uh, Bond villain deaths. Yeah, there was really no showdown. Yeah, I mean, he has that under, you know, he has kind of this lame weapon where he's got that long-barreled, you know, gun underneath the table, which is very impractical. Because he can hear the the spear shooting under the table, and he's able to jump out of the way. Well, it's not just a gun; it's it almost seems like an explosive. Yeah, and you could. That's the other thing that's really impractical about that particular weapon. Why don't you just have a gun? Because you you have to have your enemy sit at the head of the table. He's sort of undone by all his own gadgetry because he also has that chute in his elevator that leads down to the shark tank. Yeah, and he was going to drop Bond in, but Bond knew to stand on the sides. I don't know how he knows that, but uh, he uh, he figures it out. I mean, maybe he looked and saw a seam in the floor mm-hmm. or something. And then there's a pretty good fight with Jaws where he... Uh, Grabs him with a magnet and drops him into the shark tank. And then... Well, he grabs his teeth with yeah. a magnet. He tricks him into looking up so that he can magnetize his teeth. Uh, yeah, very silly. Uh, drops him into the shark tank. This is insane. Yeah, it's insane that they have Richard Keel fighting a shark and uh, biting it to death. But it's definitely one of the highlights of the movie. And that's where we finally get to see some blood, because I guess shark blood is fine. Yeah, you can you can show as much shark blood as you like, but uh, just no human blood. And then Bond finds Anya, takes her off to a sex pod, and they fire off into the ocean. Yeah, and and Jaws does survive, and he's back for the next movie. And I don't know. There's he a, swims through the ocean. Yeah, he doesn't even have a vessel. He's just swimming through open ocean. Because the U.S. Navy blows up this uh, this base. They gave him an hour to go in and rescue Anya, and uh, and Jaws just survives all of this. It's pretty incredible. Uh, he, I think he's as close as we get to just an invincible Bond villain. And then yeah, I guess I guess that's pretty much the spy who loved me. She puts aside her feelings for her lover. And uh, decides that she's going to be with Bond. And in their perfectly still sex chamber. Yeah. That's floating in the ocean, but they don't have any sort of floating or, or rocking or anything going on. It's just perfectly level. The the gag with the curtains. So this this sort of underwater rescue pod that they or escape pod that they managed to escape in has a big window, of course. So they float up to the U.S. ship, and the the Americans, the Brits, and the Russians see the two of them together in a state of undress in the luxurious bed surrounded by whiskey and other booze. <laughs> the two of them are a little embarrassed to be caught in this state, and so Bond closes the curtain. And that was just... Come on. And then we're treated we're we're treated to what seems to be a, a naval choir rendition of the uh of the opening song. Which is a little weird too. Well is it that time, Sean? Do you buy it, rent it, or tape over it? 
Uh, you know, this is such a nostalgic favorite for me. I think you gotta buy it. Um, <laughs> I, it has a lot of problems. I mean, this is, I think this is sort of what you went through with Sleepless in Seattle last time. I admit that it has a lot of flaws. I'd say if you're not a fan of the Bond movies, you, you're not gonna like this one either. This isn't one of the ones that really breaks the mold. I'd say that this is just checks all the boxes for me. It's got a great villain. It's got a fun Bond girl. And I think, uh, I think Roger Moore, I think his rendition of Bond, what makes it so special is that he was just the ultimate kind kind of suave, smooth operator. And even though you're never really are concerned about him, uh, ever coming into harm's way, it seems like he's kind of always got it under control. I do think that he left, uh, an indelible mark on this franchise. What do you think, Lindsay? You know, I'm really torn. Part of me wants to say rent it, but I really, really feel tape over it. I thought the acting was all kind of stilted. I didn't really care about anybody. The pacing was not so great. I mean, I I think I asked you two different times during the movie, how long is this? (laughs) (laughs) Never a good sign while watching Um, a movie together. I, I definitely enjoyed License to Kill a lot more, and I thought... A sort of serious but not serious kind of bond, whereas Roger Moore just didn't have his heart in it to me. I didn't, I, I wasn't tied to him and what was going on. I think because you said you're not really worried for him, so it just it it didn't didn't catch me. I think I enjoy it just because it's sort of escapist fun. Mm-hmm. But I agree that this is not my favorite version of the character. I tend to be more interested in the kind of more vulnerable bonds. But I think uh, for for the Roger Moore era, I, I, I think I stand by this one as being one of my favorites still, with, with all its flaws yeah. considered. And that's, that's the thing where I was hesitant to say tape over it, because I don't hate this movie. It's not a bad movie. It's just not very good. <laughs> and so I just don't feel like... Unless unless you're a big fan of this kind of era and this genre combined, then maybe it could work for you. But if you're not, then maybe maybe it's not worth your time. I think that I take the whole Roger Moore era kind of for granted because I grew up watching every single Bond, and I you know I knew that. Conrad's the original. Roger Moore's the campy one. You know, like <laughs> I, I, there's sort of like one-liners for everyone who played the character. If you definitely have a taste for the harder-edged, yeah. you know, Daniel Craig, or maybe not even so much harder-edged, but just more complex and more. Mm-hmm. There's more of a humanity to Craig, and especially Dalton, in my opinion. Yeah, I just don't feel like Moore's Bond is very developed, and that's a little bit disappointing. I don't really understand him. And I, I, I feel like I might have even connected with it more if it were even if it were campier than if if they had done more to make it kind of insane. Well, he made some of those, too. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe someday I'll, I'll, you'll have to give Roger Moore another shot in uh, one of his more insane efforts. Like uh, the next one, Moonraker, is pretty crazy. I actually think that Octopussy might be his craziest one <laughs> because course. he dresses up like a clown at one point. He dresses up like a gorilla see, in another scene. I, that's what I want to see. Ah, you know, maybe that's, that's what I maybe see. that's what I should have picked. 
Maybe The Spy You Loved Me is just a little too middle of the road. It's I funny. think this is a little, it was a little too serious. Yeah. It's funny because I think of all of his movies as being fairly goofy, but on this watch, I sort of thought, like, maybe the reason that critics liked this one the best of his era is because it was closer to sort of the Connery era ones. Uh, you know, particularly, this is the same director as You Only Live Twice, yeah. and it has a lot of similarities to that. Um, yeah, maybe next time I'll have to show you one of the really insane ones. See, I think I'd enjoy that, because this one, it seemed like it hadn't really decided what it wanted to be, and it was just trying to be something generically Bond. Yeah, there's a scene in Octopussy where he literally swings in on a rope doing the Tarzan yodel. So I didn't hate it. It's not terrible. I could, I, I, it made me laugh. A couple times. Well, you know, I'm actually glad uh, that I said buy it and you said tape over it because this has actually never happened on the show. Are we sure it's never happened? I'm sure. We've we've done a rent it and a tape over it. We've yeah, never think... been on extreme opposites before, which I think well, is good for the show. I, I think I think we've been on extreme opposites before and then I've just been too nice to say <laughs> tape over it when the other person said buy it. I, I don't think we need to be nice. I think that this is uh, this is good. And I've got a better idea of where to take you uh, on our next journey into Bond land. Maybe something a little bit kookier. Oh, wow. I'll have to think about it. But that's far off in the future. Let's, uh, let's turn to more current business. Namely, one episode 52 in which we're switching back over to Lindsay's collection... Lindsay, do you know what we're going to be watching next time? No. <laughs> do you want to go look at the wall of VHS tapes to decide? Yes. Let's take a quick break. Okay. And we're back. Lindsay, did you select a VHS tape? I think we should watch Highlander for our next episode. Ooh. I was a big fan of the Highlander movies, thanks to my mom, uh, when I was a kid. So I think that would be a lot of fun for us to watch. Plus, it has a Bond connection. Mr. Sean Connery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd like to thank Will Price for use of his song, Mandatory Groove. You can find more of his music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. You can learn more about us and our other episodes on our website, tapeheadspodcast.com. And you can email us with any questions or suggestions you might have at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. Please rate and review on iTunes. That's it for Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Until next time. <laughs>